Good morning. I know it's a little bit nippy here in sunny South Florida for Floridians, but for the rest of the world, this is great weather. Uh, welcome to today's Parsha class, Parshas Yisro. And the title for today's shear is Forging Spiritual DNA. This month, the month of Shabbat, is dedicated by Frida Greenbaum in memory of her beloved parents, Anna, Henya, Max, Matl Pinchas, Felowitz, who were Holocaust survivors that on a daily basis taught their family unconditional love, meaning their children and offspring, unconditional love, honor, humility, and respect for family, friends, and community. Their commitment to Jewish traditions, open hearts, and home demonstrated their devotion to the survivor community, to Eretz Yisrael, and served as well as an inspiration to their children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. And we wish that their neshamos should have an aliyah. And I, I believe the yard site is currently of uh, Frida's mother, I believe, right? I think so. Okay, so definitely very important uh, <clears throat> people to commemorate, and we are honored uh, to have Frida not only as our hostess, but to choose this as a way of honoring their memories. This week, the class is also dedicated for Fua Shalema, for Berta Batlea, mother of Doris Buzaglo, who is unfortunately really not well. So, we continue in our quest for understanding and searching for meaning of the October 7th horrific events. Amidst all of the horrors of October 7th and its devastating aftermath consequences, of course, by that, we don't only mean the war in Gaza, we mean all of the aftermath effects, which is just literally ongoing in such, uh, really such horrible ways. <clears throat> Amidst all of that, there is an inescapable conclusion regarding the Jewish nation, and that is that the spirit of the Jewish people is truly breathtaking to behold. Our people have united and shared unmitigated love for one another and cared for each other in stellar fashion. I know, I know dozens of people <clears throat> that have gone to Israel to visit injured soldiers and bring supplies and do all kinds of initiatives in order to encourage our brothers and sisters in Eretz Israel. I'm sure many of you have either yourselves gone or know also dozens of people who have done this, and it's really amazing. This epoch of Jewish history <clears throat> through which we are living is one that will be remembered as a fulcrum turning point through which so much of the future of the state of Israel and the Jewish people became defined. To those of us in the know, meaning those of us that study Torah on a regular basis, we understand the unique bonds that unite our people. We know that we are a brotherhood that is built on rock-solid foundations of forefathers and foremothers and covenantal relationships with Hashem, as well as covenantal relationships with one another, with our fellow Jews. Our shared history of ancestry, slavery, redemption, divine revelation, Torah, Eretz Yisrael, exiles and expulsions, and thousands of years of ups and downs has forged the most incredible nation that has ever existed. This is a fact that has been observed by scores of notable and famous individuals. I hope that you'll all allow me some quotes from some famous people 
just because I think it's important that we know that what we know about the Jewish nation is also observable and has been spoken about and recorded in history. Winston Churchill, for example, has said, some people like the Jews and some do not, but no thoughtful man can deny the fact that they are beyond any question the most formidable and most remarkable race which has appeared in the world. That's Winston Churchill. Mark Twain, if the statistics are right, the Jews constitute but one quarter of 1% of the human race. It suggests a nebulous puff of stardust lost in the blaze of the Milky Way. Properly, the Jew ought hardly to be heard of, but he is heard of, has always been heard of. He is as prominent on the planet as any other people and his importance is extravagantly out of proportion to the smallness of his bulk. His contributions to the world's list of great names in literature, science, art, music, finance, medicine, and abstruse learning are also very out of proportion to the weakness of his numbers. He has made a marvelous fight in this world in all ages and has done it with his hands tied behind him. He could be vain of himself and be excused for it. The Egyptians, the Babylonians, and the Persians rose, filled the planet with sound and splendor, then faded to dream stuff and passed away. The Greeks and Romans followed and made a vast noise and they were gone. Other people have sprung up and held their torch high for a time, but it burned out. And they sit in twilight now and have vanished. The Jews saw them all, survived them all, and is now what he always was, exhibiting no decadence, no infirmities of age, no weakening of his parts, no slowing of his energies, no dulling of his alert but aggressive mind. All things are mortal but the Jews. All, are, all other forces pass, but he remains. What is the secret of his immortality? Mark Twain penned all that back in September 1897. In addition, on quote-unquote Palestine, a desolate country, this is what he says, a desolate country whose soil is rich enough but is given over wholly to weeds, a silent, mournful expanse. A desolation is here that not even imagination can grace with the pomp of life and action. We never saw a human being on the whole route. We never saw a human being on the whole route. This is what Mark Twain is writing in his visit to Israel or Palestine. There was hardly a tree or a shrub anywhere. Even the olive and the cactus, those fast friends of the worthless soil, had almost deserted the, quote, the country. That's from 1867, quoted in Mark Twain, The Innocents Abroad, published in London in 1881. So that was Mark Twain. Imagine what he would say about the land of Israel today even the Gaza that was. John Adams, second president of the United States. I will insist the Hebrews have contributed more to civilized man than any other nation. If I was an atheist and believed in blind eternal fate, I should still believe that fate had ordained the Jews to be the most essential instrument for civilizing the nations. They are the most glorious nation that ever inhabited this earth. The Romans and the empire were but a bubble in comparison to the Jews. 
They have given religion to three quarters of the globe and have influenced the affairs of mankind more and more happily than any other nation, ancient or modern. Modern, that's John Adams, second president of the United States. I have more, but we'll conclude with Leo Tolstoy, the famous Russian novelist. What is the Jew? What kind of unique creature is this whom all the rulers of all the nations of the world have disgraced and crushed and expelled and destroyed, persecuted, burned, and drowned, and who, despite their anger and their fury, continues to live and flourish? What is this Jew whom they have never succeeded in enticing with all the enticements in the world, whose oppressors and persecutors only suggested that he deny and disown his religion and cast aside the faithfulness of his ancestors? The Jew is the symbol of eternity. He is the one who for so long had guarded the prophetic message and transmitted it to all mankind. A people such as this can never disappear. The Jew is eternal. He is the embodiment of eternity. That's Leo Tolstoy in What is the Jew? Printed in Jewish World Periodical in this quote, 1908. Okay, we'll save some more for the transcript. So in today's Parsha discussion, we will focus on the secret formula that has forged our nation's uniqueness. We just quoted all non-Jews speaking of the eternity and the unique ability of the Jewish people to not only survive, but to influence the world in the most positive of ways, way beyond what would be otherwise imaginable. Parshas Yisro contains a description of the bedrock event of Jewish history, Hashem's manifest revelation to his entire nation at Mount Sinai. Now, when one contemplates the gargantuan significance of this event, one is compelled to think about why. Why did Hashem appear in such a public fashion to every member of the Jewish people? And why did this type of revelation occur only one time in history? One might be inclined to answer that Hashem appeared this way in order to prove his, meaning to prove Hashem's existence to the Jewish people. However, if that's true, then why does Hashem predict during the Exodus narrative, which we just concluded in our Parshios in the Torah, Hashem predicted that Egypt will know of the existence of Hashem through the plagues and the miracles of the Red Sea. There's a quote from Perizayin Pasuke that says, I am doing these miracles in order that Egypt should know, Parshas Ba'era. Then we have a quote from Parshas Bo, uh, 14.4, that Egypt will know that I am Hashem. How does Hashem expect Egypt to know if it depends on manifest revelation, which happens at Mount Sinai? And moreover, how does Hashem expect the rest of mankind to know of his existence? And how is the rest of humanity deemed to be accountable to the Noahide laws? They didn't have divine manifest revelation. Now, there's a fascinating paragraph that follows Hashem's revelation, right? This experience where Hashem is clearly revealed and Hashem speaking the Ten Commandments. There's a really incredible paragraph that follows that. And I'm going to uh, briefly run through some of the sentences and then give you a summary overview. It says the entire, this is Shavi'i in Parshas Yisro, chapter 20, sentence 
15, it says that the entire nation saw the thunder, the lightning, the sound of the shofar, the smoking mountain, the people trembled and they stood from a distance and they said to Moshe, listen, you speak to Hashem. Hashem should not speak to us lest we will die. Moshe said to the people, don't worry, because in order to elevate you, Hashem has come to appear to you. He came to raise you up. And in order that his awe, that the awe of Hashem, year us Hashem, should be on your faces in order that you will not sit. Moshe stood from afar, as did, I'm sorry, the people stood from afar. Moshe approached the smoke that Hashem was there. And then Hashem said to Moshe, listen, tell the Jewish people, you saw that from the heaven I spoke to you. Don't do different forms of idolatry. Make sure that you serve Hashem with all your offerings in the place that Hashem will choose to dwell his name and bless you there. And don't, you know, certain laws about the about the service. And that's how the parsha ends. But the summary of these verses is that the Jewish people experienced an awesomely vivid divine revelation whereupon they requested that henceforth Moshe should speak to Hashem directly on their behalf and that Moshe should convey Hashem's messages to them and that they, the Jewish people themselves, should not communicate directly with Hashem, should not hear from Hashem directly. Moshe should intercede. And additionally, the Torah describes reasons that Hashem appeared this one time to all of them in manifest fashion. Now, clearly, that sentence which says, don't worry because Hashem came to lift you up. And in order that his awe should be on your faces is describing two purposes of signing. Number one, to elevate the status of the Jewish nation. And number two, in order that the people would have the awe of Hashem upon them at all times, and they therefore would or should not sin. Now, that's great, but notice that it doesn't say that Hashem appeared to you in order that you should have proven to you his existence. It doesn't say that. Additionally, we have another perplexing sentence to understand with Rashi. Then we'll kind of summarize these questions and begin our answer. So it says in chapter 20, sentence 19, Hashem said to Moshe, this is what you should tell the Jewish people. Again, in this list of sentences, Post the Ten Commandments, you saw that from the heaven I spoke to you. You saw, says Rashi. There's a difference between a, what a person himself sees and what others relate to him and others tell him. For what others relate to him, sometimes a person's heart is divided in its opinion so that he does not believe what other people told him. That's the difference. What a person sees firsthand, seemingly what Rashi is saying, a person cannot deny. But what other people tell him, a person can deny. Well, that's a scary thought. And I'll pose it to you in our questions. First question number one. If the revelation of Hashem at Sinai is the proof, that is the proof of his existence, how is the rest of mankind to know that Hashem is real? And related, which we're calling question number two, is why does the Torah not state this proof of Hashem's existence as one of the purposes of the Sinai event? That's question number two. If that, in fact, is what happens with Sinai, why is that not the stated purpose of Sinai? And number three, if as Rashi that we just quoted posits that when a person does not see something firsthand, he is sometimes skeptical from believing it, what are Jews in later generations who did not themselves 
see Hashem's revelation supposed to do? How are those later Jews supposed to concretely know Hashem's existence, which is outlined in the Aleinu prayer, and it comes from a, a, a sentence in, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, you should know today and return or put into your heart that Hashem is the true God uh, in the heavens above and over the earth below. Additionally, right, not only how are the later Jews supposed to know about his existence, but one of the stated purposes is in order that the awe of Hashem should be on our faces so that we shouldn't sin. How are these later Jews supposed to be prevented from sinning as in order that the fear of God may be ever with you so that you do not go astray if they did not see it firsthand? How are we supposed to have the awe of Hashem upon our faces and be prevented from sin? So I, I think that these are extremely hard questions. I, I don't think that they're simple at all, but uh, hopefully we'll have the beginning of a breakthrough idea that will inform us how we're supposed to answer these questions, but also inform us how we're supposed to be helping our nation today to get through the current events. So here's the starting point. Knowledge of Hashem's existence is not specifically or only based on manifest revelation. That is a false premise. And we'll explain the purpose of the revelation, very, very important point and concrete uh, in terms of its application, but it's not the same thing as knowing that Hashem exists. Knowledge of Hashem's existence is based on logic, such as there has to be a prime cause. The world can't come from nowhere. I'm sure you've all heard the example you know, somebody asked, hey, who wrote this Shakespeare book? And somebody says, what do you mean? Some ink fell on a bunch of pages and all the letters just happened to come out. And that's what, that's how Shakespeare was written. And any rational person says, that's insane. Well, it's equally insane for the galaxies as we know them to exist, to support human life with such a balanced ecosystem that if it's out of whack a little bit, everything dies. It's even more insane to think that there is no prime cause for that. That's part of the quote-unquote logic that we know that Hashem exists. In addition to that is the historical knowledge, what we call the Haggadah, the story of the Exodus from Egypt. And included in that is the history of divine revelation at Sinai, as well as constant, numerous reminders of the truths as articulated in the Torah both in terms of what is reasonable and sensible and moral and necessary for mankind to exist. As I quoted those earlier people, nobody has contributed more to civilization than the Jews through the Torah, of course. Right. So that's also part of the proof of the existence of Hashem, as well as the numerous prophecies that have been predicted in the Torah that have come true, whether it's the Babylonian exile or the exile of the Jewish people from the land of Israel post the Babylonian exile, etc., etc. We are living proof today to so many of the prophetic predictions of the Torah. And of course, among the strongest of these pieces of evidence that prove the existence of Hashem and the truth of the Torah is the ongoing survival and thriving of the Jewish nation, as improbable as it is, and as you heard, whether it's Churchill or Twain, 
or others talking about this eternity of the Jewish people, it's one of the clearest indicators that Hashem is real, the Torah is real, and the Jewish people's relationship with him is real. Okay, so that means we don't really need the Mount Sinai event in order to know that Hashem is real or that the Torah is real. And because of that, all people of the world, including Egypt themselves, who Hashem says, Egypt will know that I exist, they know also because of these things that we've mentioned, whether it's the logical evolution of the world as we see it, plus the miracles of Egypt, plus the ongoing miracles that have protected the Jewish people throughout the generations, etc., right? The ongoing survival of the Jewish people. All of that is information that is available to everyone. And through that information, every single person in history, right, today and going back in all time, is able to know the truth of Hashem's existence and therefore be accountable to the truth of the Noahide laws as outlined in the Torah. Okay, so then why do we need manifest revelation at Mount Sinai? The difference between seeing firsthand and hearing or learning information from reliable people and sources is not, the difference is not that reliable people are not enough and that they don't have credibility and we shouldn't accept that what they say is true. The difference is that it does not create the same indelible mindfulness. When one experiences and sees something firsthand, it's necessary to block it out of your mind in order to deny it. You can't just simply not pay attention to it. It's seared into your brain. This, of course, is the difference between the people that either lived through the horrors of October 7th or saw the video footage of October 7th and the people who have not seen it. That's the difference. They both know it's true. It's only morons, idiots, and absolute uh, evil people that would deny the truth of those things. And yes, there are even college professors today in America denying that October 7th happened, as insane as that is, which goes to show you even when you have proof, a person can still choose to deny. But the difference between the people that are normal and rational that hear about October 7th versus the ones who see October 7th is the level that it is seared into the person's brain and therefore the level of denial required to not think about it. That's the difference. Everybody hear that? It's a huge difference. In one case, I can't help but think about it. The images are burned into my brain. But in the other case, okay, I know it's true, but I, I'm not thinking about it now. It's not on my mind. I don't have it ever planted into my consciousness. That's a humongous difference. And so when Rashi says that the person who sees something firsthand will not have his heart divided from accepting it and from believing it, what he means is that when it's burned into the brain, it requires a much greater denial in order to lobotomize one's brain to get it out of his system. Whereas when a person hears about it from reliable people, of course he accepts it as true, but it's easier to not think about and therefore to not internalize. When something is burned into your brain, you have no choice but to internalize it. It's there already. But when it's not, then maybe you internalize it and maybe you don't. 
even though you know it's true. So that's the difference between manifest revelation and knowing the truth of Hashem's existence through the logic of creation and the miracles of Egypt, et cetera, et cetera, as we listed before. And we're going to, because of this, begin to understand the great, unique, elevated status of the Jewish nation, as we'll see in a moment in a, in a, as, we, as it unfolds. So what do later generations of Jews gain from the Sinai experience versus not having had a Sinai experience because I wasn't at Sinai. And yes, there are the Midrashim that talk about all souls were at Sinai. And I'm not here to discount them. I'm here to give what I think is a more easily understood explanation. And you can use that as a bolstering piece if you like. What later generations of Jews gain from the Sinai experience is what becomes the collective national mindset of the Jewish people. When the Jewish people as a nation experience manifest revelation, the Jewish nation, the mind of the collective Jewish nation cannot unknow the Sinai experience. It's impossible. We as a Jewish nation will never live in a reality as though that experience didn't happen. And the reason is very simple because we can't get away from every other Jew. I'll highlight it with a very interesting uh, story that my friend Joseph Rackman told me. It's really fascinating. He said I could use names. Uh, his father, Rabbi Emanuel Rackman, was explicit about these names. There was once a Jew who decided to move out of the Jewish populated areas in New York to move to Long Island, where at that time there were no Jews. I know that's hard to believe. And the reason was because he wanted to raise a perfect Jewish family. He didn't want him to be negatively influenced, meaning he didn't want his family to be negatively influenced by all those other Jews that are not the best examples. So he decided he's going to live on his own in Long Island and raise the perfect Jewish family. Now he raised a son that actually became very famous uh, in history. For those of you who are familiar with these ancient uh, uh, TV things called The Odd Couple, Tony Randall. Tony Randall was his son. In fact, Tony Randall's father, who made this move, was very close with Rabbi Emanuel Rackman, and he gave Rabbi Rackman as a bequest to Tony Randall his own pair of tefillin, but he said, don't give it to my son Tony until he appreciates what tefillin are. Okay? Well, long story made short, as wonderful and uh, genius of an actor as Tony Randall was, and whatever his contributions were to comedy, um, he doesn't become the prototype role model Jew. Because moving away from the rest of the Jewish nation does not help Jewish identity. It's the fact that we build societies together. It's the fact that for thousands of years, we have built shuls, yeshivos, chesed organizations, right? And built unbelievable initiatives together as a community that is part of the collective national consciousness that was forged at Mount Sinai. Because we all experience this together, there's a unique mindset that cannot be avoided. If you're Jewish, the only way to not be aware of Mount Sinai and the story of the Exodus is to dissociate from the Jewish people. 
is to somehow take yourself out of the group, which is what the Russia does in the Haggadah. The reason that the Russia is blasted in the Haggadah is not because he's saying, hey, why should we serve God? It's because he's saying, why do you serve God? And he doesn't see himself as part of the collective Jewish nation. That's the only way that a Jew can deny Mount Sinai. The only way that a Jew can unknow the Sinai experience and lobotomize himself is to take himself out of the Jewish group. Because if you're in the Jewish group, everybody in the group reminds you of the truth. Because that became our collective mindset based on firsthand divine revelation. When that manifested, we and our souls as a collective Jewish people developed a consciousness that cannot unknow the existence of Hashem. That's not true by any other nation in the world. Any other nation in the world is obligated to know the truth of Hashem's existence. It's easier for them to not know it because they don't have it seared into a national consciousness. And as much as they've heard of the Jews, as all those other quotes that we stated at the beginning, accept the truth of the uniqueness of the Jewish people, it's only if people are paying attention and not choosing to live alternative lifestyles and not think about what's true and what's important that they would not know. But it's easier for them to do that than it is for a Jew to do that. And that's really the reason that you have self-hating Jews. Because if you can't actively fight it, and you can't deny it, then you have to accept it, which is what they don't want to do. And that was created because of the Sinai experience. <clears throat> now, the fact that the Jewish nation as a whole experienced divine revelation has the result that collectively it is always on our mind that Hashem exists and that we serve him as the Torah outlines, which is why you find so many Jews in these catastrophic moments as happened since October 7th, easily come back because all these other Jews are living that life and they know about that life and it's at the edges, it's at the periphery of what they maybe have been trying to deny but are now willingly accepting because they understand the value of it, the importance of it, and that instinctively it is a part of them. Now this entire thing that we're describing is actually what is meant by the following conversation that happens between Moshe and Hashem at the burning bush. In Moshe's first conversation with Hashem at the Senet, at the burning bush, Moshe says to Hashem, Hashem, who am I that I should go speak to Pharaoh, that I should bring the Jewish people out of Egypt? Says Rashi, what does Moshe mean, who am I? What importance do I have that I should speak with monarchs? Who am I to open my mouth in front of the kings of the world like Paro, and that I should bring the Jewish people out of Israel, uh, out of out of Egypt, even if I, says Moshe, somehow you convince me I'm important enough to speak to Paro. How do the Jewish people merit that a miracle should happen for them, and that somehow miraculously I'm going to serve them being brought out of Egypt? And Hashem said, "I'm going to be with you," and this is the sign <coughs> that it is I who sent you. Because when the people are freed from Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. Worship Hashem at this mountain. Says Rashi, when you asked me, who am I that I should go to Pyro? What importance am I to speak with kings? I, Hashem, am going to be with you. 
And this, that you've seen the burning bush, that's a sign that it's me that sent. And by the way, I, Hashem, am competent to save, just like you see the bush does not become consumed. But your question, what merit do the Jews have to be redeemed? The answer is, because I promise you that when they get out of Egypt, they will receive and accept the Torah on this mountain at Mount Sinai. And this is the merit, merit which is an advocate for the Jewish people. And if you read the rest of Rashi, this is actually the merit that stands for the Jewish nation for all time. Because our service of Hashem, which starts at Sinai, is built on the collective mindset, not only that Hashem exists, but that we accept the reality of his existence and accept the service of him as outlined by the Torah. In other words, the major description of the net effect of the divine revelation at Mount Sinai is the collective acceptance of Hashem's existence and that we serve him through the Torah. So whether that's building yeshivos or building schools and building families and building communities and doing chesed, whether it's all of that or the personal relationships that we cultivate with Hashem, all of this is the national mindset. You can't take this out of the Jewish nation. It will never, ever stop that there will be groups of Jews that will build shuls and will build communities and will build yeshivas and will build institutions to help each other and the, and the world. It will never stop because that's what Jews do because it's indelibly imprinted on our national consciousness. Now, I just want to go to one more piece, which is really fascinating. Uh, it's a teaching of the rabbis also based on this sentence that says that the awe of Hashem will forever be upon you. And the source is Tractate Yevamo 79a. There are three signs in the Jewish nation. That means there are three identifying spiritual DNA markers of a Jew. Rachmanim, they are merciful. Baishanim, they possess the attribute of shame, gomlei chasadim, and they possess the attribute of charitable kindness. Now, how do we know that the Jewish people possess the DNA quality of shame? It is this sentence, in order that the awe of Hashem will be on your faces, the Talmud explains that how do you see awe on a person's face? When a person becomes embarrassed, and the blood drains from their face, it's reflected in their face the knowledge that they have acted below a standard of godliness. Right? It's reflected. That's what the Torah means. The awe of Hashem on a person's face is vividly shown when a person gets embarrassed because it shows on their face the recognition of a standard that has been violated. Now, that's the sentence that's speaking of the purposes of Mount Sinai. Why did Hashem appear to us? In order to elevate the Jewish nation. That means that the Jewish people and the entire world will know that the Jewish people are unique. And what is the uniqueness of the Jewish people? That they experienced firsthand manifest revelation. And another result of that manifest revelation is that Jewish people have burned into their soul 
that there is a standard of behavior that is demanded of the dignity of a human being because Hashem exists. Because Hashem exists, there is automatically a standard of dignity that is dictated by the morality of Hashem's existence that makes a Jewish person know whenever that standard has been violated and therefore that awe is expressed on their face in terms of shame. Now, here's the point that I really want to get to. There are three qualities of the Jewish people. This is the proof that the Jewish people have awe. But in other places, we know that the rabbis teach us that these three qualities are actually embedded in us by virtue of our forefathers. Avraham, of course, representing the loving kindness and the charitable deeds. That's chesed. We get that from Avraham. That's gomle chasadu. Yaakov, of course, represents the Rahmanus, the compassion, the way that he had to deal with all of his children compassionately. That's represented by Yaakov, and therefore we have as part of our DNA the quality of Rahmanut, mercy. And Busha comes from Yitzchak, because Yitzchak is the one who serves God. He lives, so to speak, in the constant awareness of God's presence, of God's omnipresence, that God is always present. As we say uh, in many of our Sidurim, that we put Hashem in front of us always, that's an attribute of service to God. And as we just mentioned, service of of, of Hashem at Mount Sinai is what brings the quality of Busha. So I'm just asking a simple question. Does it come from our forefathers or does it come from the divine revelation at Sinai? Which is it? Is it because Yitzchak is our forefather or is it because what we experienced at Mount Sinai? And here is what I would like to suggest. The answer is both. The answer is both. When we as parents model certain kinds of behavior and especially these three that we inherited from our ancestors, what we're doing is we are living the natural result of divine revelation. When we act with mercy, when we act with kindness, when we have a sense of appropriateness and decorum and what would embarrass us and therefore avoid and don't sin, we are practically implementing the results of Mount Sinai. When we teach that to our children, then we are truly passing down the spiritual DNA, which is part of us. And again, something that's embedded into us is much harder to deny, but especially if it's bolstered by the behaviors that we demonstrate and talk about vocally to our children, which is why when we look at the obligation to remember the Mount Sinai experience, what does the Torah say? Be very careful, guard your soul very much, lest you forget the things that your eyes saw, lest they become removed from your heart all the days of your life, and you should inform them to your children and to your grandchildren the day that you stood in front of Hashem at Chorev. That's chapter 25 in Deuteronomy, in the Sefer Devarim, Sentences 17 through 19. That's the obligation to remember the Sinai event. So Hashem did everything, so to speak, in his power to give us the opportunity to know him, but not only to know him, to not be able to unknow him. And the way that we carry that forward is by reminding ourselves, by talking about it, by remembering what happened at Sinai, and by acting according to the shame component 
that was indelibly imprinted on our souls at Mount Sinai. And the way that we can be much more assured of passing it down to the next generation is when we advocate these truths very, 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 very clearly. Right? In the old times, sometimes you know, people sometimes used to say it's fair to be a Jew. We have to do the opposite. You have to say what an honor it is to be a Jew. How privileged are we that we stand against the vermin and the evil of the rest of the world and their naysaying of the existence of God, of their destroying the dignity of a human being, and even worse, committing the atrocities such as seen on October 7th. How privileged are we that we are the opposite of those people? How privileged are we that we truly are the light of the world and we have brought civilization all, uh, almost all the good that it has? That is Hashem coming to elevate us. But in order for us to live up to our part of that privilege, we have to be the people that adhere to these truths that are ashamed to violate the laws of the Torah, whether it's in morality laws, ethics laws, integrity laws, service to Hashem laws, any violation that we do to that is actually chipping away at this DNA that was forged at Sinai. And then most importantly, we have to remember to live as a collective entity. We can't go ourselves, whether it was the Long Island of old or to any other isolated community and think, you know what, that's going to be the best way to live as a Jew. It's the opposite. We have to live with other Jews, we have to be tolerant, we have to work out, we have to advocate to other Jews that they should learn Torah and that they should know the truths of the Torah. These two incredible outcomes of Mount Sinai, Hashem gave us the greatest gift of elevating us, and Hashem gave us the greatest gift of being absolutely unable to deny his existence unless we give ourselves a lobotomy. That's what we have to be sharing with our fellow Jews. And if we do that, hopefully we then remember that Hashem only appeared to us because we were unified, because every Jew has their role and every Jew has their purpose. So whether it's the rabbi or it's the community leader or it's the one who had, you know, helps put together shul functions, whatever is the role that a person has, it's part of this unbelievable gift that is the collective national consciousness of the Jewish people. We help one another. Not only do we help one another to know of the existence of Hashem, but to actually serve Hashem. And thereby, we help the rest of the world to become the place that it is supposed to be. Most importantly, we help remind each other of our national purpose and mission. And that's what the Torah means. That's going to be unforgettable for our Jewish nation. It's not about knowing that Hashem exists. It's about not being able to deny his existence and therefore serve him which is really what the Mount Sinai experience is all about. And so hopefully by appreciating how we come to know Hashem collectively, we will also come to appreciate each other individually and recognize the unique value and importance of each and every Jew, remind each other of that role that each person has, and hopefully energize each person to fulfill their personal mission in this national collective entity. Questions or comments? Akiva, 
Yes. Akiva, I missed um what causes um Jewish self hate? I saw her. I missed that. What what causes it is that because Jews so viscerally know of the truth of Hashem's existence, they have to do everything that they can to fight the truth of it by denying it as viciously as they can in mm. order to like unknow what they really know right, other right, right. live with themselves too, you know. Right. Right. Yeah, because they, they, they know it. They, they just you know they're trying to do everything that they can to to mm -hmm. uh, deny it because otherwise they're gonna be stuck with accepting it. <laughs> right. All right, thanks, Ativa. See you next week. Okay, thanks. thank you. See you, thank you. Anyone else with a question or comment in the room? On one hand, we're saying that Rashi says that because we didn't hear it ourselves, that we could, uh, it's not that we would have to deny it. But on the other hand, you're saying that we would know it saying, anyways. Yeah. So Revitzon Begelman is asking for like a, a re clarification of the essential question that if it's true that we can know of the existence of Hashem without Sinai. So why does Rashi say that we saw it firsthand and that's why we can't um, deny it? And so my yeah, answer... Right, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, uh, that, that's, it's, it's saying the same thing, just the converse. Right, in other words, the flip side is that sometimes when a person doesn't see something firsthand, they could deny it. But yet we're saying that even without Sinai, a person would know of the existence of Hashem. And so what we're explaining is, is that people know things, but there's a difference between knowing something firsthand and knowing something secondhand. Knowing something firsthand means that in order for me to not know it, I have to destroy some part of my brain, right? I have to do some kind of a, like a theoretical lobotomy in order to block it out of my mind, right? That's if I saw it firsthand. Whereas if I just heard about it, so even though I know it to be true and I accept it to be true, I can easily not think about it. It's not burned into my brain, right? So what happened at Mount Sinai is that the Jews that were there now have it burned into their brain. So those Jews can't deny it. Well, what about the later generations of Jews? For sure, as we explained, they can know. But why does it help that Mount Sinai happened? The answer is because Mount Sinai created a collective national mindset that passes down from generation to generation that makes it impossible for Jews to really deny the existence. Even though as an individual, I'd say, listen, it's not burned into my brain, I didn't see it, right? But because the rest of the Jewish people are always, or almost all the rest of the Jewish people are always focused on the truth of Hashem's existence and the service that we have to Hashem because of Mount Sinai, which is all the community building and everything else we described, it becomes, similar that in order to not know that Hashem exists, we really have to block it out of our brain. Because as a nation, we're living a reality that Hashem does exist. And that's why it's so important that it happened to everyone together and that everyone was united at that time and in agreement upon the experience and their commitment because of the experience. I guess it wasn't possible that we should see it firsthand. Later generations can't see it firsthand. Right. So later generations can't see it firsthand unless Hashem does it firsthand. But that's not necessary, which is why Hashem doesn't do that, because Hashem wants us to ultimately still choose it. 
Um, and most importantly, when Jews are acting like Jews, then it'll be much less harder, much less possible for other any any faction of Jews to deny it. Any other questions or comments? Thank you, Rabbi Akiva. Okay, thank you all. Have a great, great day, everyone. Thank you, Rabbi.